Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. April 19, 2021, coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. The defense and prosecution presented their closing arguments in the Derek Chauvin murder trial today. The jury is deliberating. Seniors across the country are bracing for the verdict. We have all sort of legal panel ready to break it all down for you. In Virginia, Fairfax County, they will dismiss 400 convictions brought by the same police officer because, oh, let's just say, wrongdoing. In Prince George's County, Maryland, State's attorney has a list of officers not credible enough to testify, yet they're still on the force. We will talk with her. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signs his anti-riding bill into law. The Dream Defenders say it's an anti-protest bill. We'll be joined by their executive director. Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene announces she plans to introduce a resolution to expel Democratic Congresswoman Maxine Waters from Congress. 
He's such an idiot. And we'll tell you about multiple shootings over the weekends in Chicago, Austin, and Kenosha, Wisconsin. And in my weekly book club segment, we'll look at white evangelical racism. Folks, it is time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. He's got it. Whatever the miss, he's on it. Whatever it is, he's got the scoop, the fact, the fine. And when it breaks, he's right on time. And it's rolling. Best believe he's knowing. Putting it down from sports to news to politics. With entertainment just for kicks, he's rolling. Yeah, yeah. It's on go, go, roll, y'all. Yeah, yeah. It's rolling, Martin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Rolling with rolling now. Yeah. He's funk, he's fresh, he's real, the best you know. He's rolling, Martin. Folks, a pivotal day in Minneapolis where ex-police officer Derek Chauvin is on trial for the murder of George Floyd. Three weeks of testimony boils down to final arguments presented by the defense and the prosecution. Here's a roundup. This use of force was unreasonable. It was excessive. It was grossly disproportionate. It is not an excuse for the shocking abuse that you saw with your own eyes. And you can believe your own eyes. This case is exactly what you thought when you saw it first, when you saw that video. It is exactly that. You can believe your eyes. It's exactly what you believed. It's exactly what you saw with your eyes. It's exactly what you knew. It's what you felt in your gut. It's what you now know in your heart. This wasn't policing. This was murder. The defendant is guilty of all three counts. All of them. And there's no excuse. His heart failed because the defendant's use of force, the 929, right, that deprived Mr. Floyd of the oxygen that he needed, that humans need, to live. And Dr. Tobin knows because he is a pulmonologist. He's a lung doctor. But for the defendant's actions pushing him down, would George Floyd have died that day? The drugs? He'd just miraculously die of a drug overdose in that time? Uh, maybe it was the tailpipe. Maybe it was his enlarged heart. Maybe not. Use your common sense. Use your common sense. Believe your eyes. What you saw, you saw. And George Floyd replied, I'm not trying to win. I'm not trying to win. I'm scared. But the defendant, the defendant was trying to win. He wasn't going to be told what to do. He wasn't going to take a challenge to his authority. He was trying to win. And George Floyd paid for it with his life. The presumption of innocence, the defendant is presumed innocent. That's the starting point. He's presumed innocent of these charges. And this presumption remains with him throughout the course of the trial, the presentation of the evidence, throughout the course of your deliberations, 
until and unless the state has proved its case beyond a reasonable doubt. The defendant does not have to prove his innocence. We talked about this in jury selection. We talked about the starting point. The defendant doesn't have to try to catch up. He starts at the presumption of innocence. A criminal case is kind of like baking chocolate chip cookies. You have to have the necessary ingredients. You've got to have flour and sugar and butter and chocolate chips and whatever else goes into those chocolate chip cookies. If you have all of the ingredients, you can make chocolate chip cookies. But if you're missing any one single ingredient, you can't make chocolate chip cookies. It's a simple kind of analogy. But the criminal law works the same way. We say, the we call the ingredients the elements. The state has the burden of proving each and every element beyond a reasonable doubt. Not just some global proposition that they've proved their case beyond a reasonable doubt. They have to prove each of these elements beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you determine that they have done so, you convict. But if they are missing any one single element, any one single element, it is a not guilty verdict. A reasonable police officer understands the intensity of the struggle. You can see at points when Mr. Floyd's legs kick back, it actually almost knocks Officer Lane over. It knocks off the body-worn camera and the badge of Officer Chauvin in this struggle. A reasonable police officer would understand this situation, that Mr. Floyd was able to overcome the efforts of three police officers while handcuffed with his legs and his body strength. A reasonable police officer would also consider his department's policies, including the use of non-deadly force policy. Force that does not have the reasonable likelihood of causing or creating a substantial risk of death or great bodily harm. This includes, but is not limited to, physically subduing, controlling, capturing, restraining, or physically managing a person. This is the policy, 5-302 of the Minneapolis Police Department, that non-deadly force can be used to physically manage a person. So throughout the course of this trial, the state has focused your attention on nine minutes and 29 seconds. The proper analysis is to take those nine minutes and 29 seconds and put it into the context of the totality of the circumstances that a reasonable police officer would know. And the proper analysis starts with what did the officers, or what would a reasonable officer know at the time of dispatch? I'm gonna start talking to you about the, what I call the 46th witness. Uh, you actually have heard from 45 witnesses on the stand, but there is a 46th witness. And this witness was testifying to you before you got here to the courtroom. Uh, they testified over everybody else's testimony on the stand. It's the only witness that will be talking to you when you're back in deliberations. And that witness, ladies and gentlemen, is common sense. Common sense. We'll continue talking with you 
all the while. Because while you've heard hours and hours and hours uh, of discussions here in the closing, ultimately it really isn't that complicated uh, in, in what it is you have to decide with respect to the excessive use of force and uh, the issue of causation. The fact that it's so simple that a child could understand it. In fact, a child did understand it when the nine-year-old girl said, get off of him. That's how simple it was. Get off of him. Common sense. Why is it necessary to continue applying deadly restraint to a man who is defenseless, who is handcuffed, who is not resisting, who is not breathing, who doesn't have a pulse, and to go on and do that for another three plus minutes before the ambulance shows up and then to continue doing it. How is that a reasonable exercise in the use of force? You can believe your eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it was what you thought it was. It was what you saw. Uh, it was homicide. Let's go to our legal panel. Terrain Bailey, attorney, the Bailey Law Firm, Candace Kelly, legal analyst, and Monique Presley, legal analyst and crisis manager. Glad to have all of you here. Uh, first off, Candace, uh, I'll start with you. Um, your assessment of closing arguments uh, today, uh, I got the sense that Chauvin folk were all over the place. I really wasn't quite understanding what the hell they were talking about. Yeah, you know, they really didn't give a coherent argument in terms of what we saw Jerry Blackwell do at the end on his rebuttal. We saw how he just decimated their argument and went step by step as to what they were trying to present. And basically saying, like the, the, uh, the soundbite said, just listen to your common sense. They're going to talk to you about causation. They're going to talk to you about heart disease and meth and fentanyl. They're going to talk to you about, about exhaust, right? Carbon monoxide. But when we look at that, all of those Jerry shredded. And I think that we got not only just a good idea about what jurors were going to have to grapple with, but what just good lawyering is overall. We saw that there was a good story to tell, and Jerry Blackwell especially told it very, very well. Monique, your assessment. I think the prosecution as a whole uh, did its job and did um, certainly enough to get the desired and proper outcome, which is guilty. It should be on, on all three of the charges. Uh, the defense has been just borderline abysmal throughout, and today was no different. Um, they've resisted every urge to, to make coherent arguments. They've resisted every urge to try to actually uh, put through the type of, of analysis and factual debate that would lead to a reasonable doubt. The entire time, it's been grasping at straws, it's been conjecture, it's been hypotheticals, and I just pray that that was not effective for a single juror. Terrain, uh, you have uh, been uh, quite critical of, uh, as a defense attorney, what you have seen from, from the Chauvin defense team. Uh, again, your assessment of these closing arguments today. One of the things you learn when you become a defense attorney is that when you're presenting your case to the jury, you need to tell a coherent story. You need to have a theme and a theory. There was none of that here. They just threw everything from beginning to end just up on the wall, hoping it would stick. 
we heard everyone blamed from the perspective of the witnesses, from the EMTs not arriving on time, to exhaust fumes being the reason why this man, George Floyd, is dead. We heard everything but a reasonable explanation why this evidence doesn't support a conviction. And it's very disappointing to see a defense attorney go out there and do a subpar job. I mean, every defendant deserves to have competent counsel, and that did not happen here. Uh, when we talk about, uh, we start breaking all of these these different things down, um, and um, what, what was what was very interesting um, as I watched these closing arguments, how the prosecution candidates just completely said <laughs> they talked about drugs, one pill found. They talked about this drug, trace amount found in his body. They talked about they, they talked about uh, this. Uh, no, you just don't just die a arrhythmia just for the hell of it. I mean, it was. I mean, I, I was sitting there going, "Man, my man is just sitting and just crushing every single thing they threw out." Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I don't know what he had for dinner, but for lunch he had that defense every time he came up to speak about what was going on. I think one of the most interesting things too was this visual that he had where he broke down George Floyd's life in 10-minute increments to get rid of this argument that maybe everything just culminated at once and everything coincidentally happened at the same time, that he just died at the same time that the knee was on the neck, but it's not because of the knee that was on the neck. So seeing that one dot on the screen represent his, you know, excessive force and break it down that way. He was just a good storyteller. He really captivated you. And when you look at Eric Nelson, I mean, he hasn't been a bad storyteller up, you know, up until this point. But here, you know, you have to believe in your argument so that the jury can believe in your argument. And we didn't see that. I didn't see a lot of faith. I didn't see a lot of what he had in his opening argument. If you go back to the opening arguments and look at all the promises that were made by the uh, by the prosecution and the defense, this is where at the end of the story, we have to make good on the story. I mean, we didn't see Maurice Hall. As you mentioned, all of the arguments were just disintegrated and he just didn't rise to the occasion. And this is something that I think that the jury is going to more than take into consideration. Jerry Blackwell was the last person that they listened to. This is the person that they're in deliberation room right now up until seven o'clock to, to figure out you know what's going on and when you have jerry blackwell's voice in your in your head like he was giving off today it can't but echo and just ring uh, the truth that the prosecution wants the jury to hear um and to that particular point there um uh, monique in terms of um what was laid out um from your vantage point um put yourself uh in the seat of that jury, you're sitting there, you're listening to these arguments being played out, you're listening to um, what is being said. Uh, how do you assess, again, put yourself in the place of a jury, how do you assess that? I think that that jury likely has been ready. Uh, and so that's why I, I was amused uh, by defense counsel Nelson's arguments at the end about how they should have been sequestered all along and et cetera. Listen, the agitation that he was getting before lunch that was obvious to everybody in the courtroom from that jury would have been three times as bad. Uh, this has, as, as, as we learned, you know, they've had 40 plus witnesses um, and there's been more than enough evidence for each of the elements of each of the charges. And that's why I thought that lead counsel and Shiker did an excellent job of being forceful, being emphatic, 
but being very measured and very calm at the same time, utilizing appropriate uh, changes in pace and vocal inflection in order to, without yelling at jurors, because they can't stand that, without doing that, uh, actually going methodically through piece by piece. And as the other counsel on the panel have said, it was just un answered. And I agree that that is, is shameful. I've been a criminal and civil defense attorney for 22 years, and um, that is not what meets constitutional standards of adequate defense. And as I have said all along, I've been looking at it thinking, are they going for insufficiency of counsel? Because this is a terrible job. So without being able to actually look at the jurors and see who was paying attention and who wasn't, all I could say is, I know that they heard enough, and I couldn't understand for the life of me why defense counsel kept insisting on playing that video. That video was murder to their case, and there was no shine that they could put on any part of it that assisted them. I would have had to have been forced to, to play that video on cross. I, 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 I didn't understand it watching any day of the trial, and I didn't understand it today. I'd be like, what video? The, uh, one of the things that was interesting uh, took place, Terrain, when it came to this nonsense dealing with Congresswoman Maxine Waters, okay? Before I play that, uh, at noon, uh, when they broke for lunch, there was a news conference, the George Floyd family, uh, attorney Ben Crump, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty was also there, Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. Here's what Congresswoman Beatty had to say. Thank you. I'm here on behalf of our 56 members of the Congressional Black Caucus, several of them with us today. We come today in solidarity with the Floyd family, with all of the street fighters, the activists, the congressional people, because today it is not Minnesota versus all police. It is about Minnesota versus Derek Chauvin. And in the words of George Floyd's daughter, my daddy will change the world. This verdict today changes the world. Thank you. All right, so this weekend, Congresswoman Maxine Waters was in Minneapolis, and then she said this to protesters. Guys, please pray the Maxine Waters comment, please. Okay, so here's the deal. Let me find it myself. All right, so this weekend, okay, got thank you. I need you to get, come on, play it, please. And so, yes, I would like to see the bill in Congress pass on police reform, but I know that the right wing, the racist are opposed to it, and I don't know what's going to happen to it, but I know this, we've got to stay in the street, and we've got to... We've got to demand justice. As a black man, despite all of the efforts, I feel like nothing changes. And George Floyd is waking so many people up, yet nothing has happened, just, you know, despite the rhetoric. Like, what, what needs to happen that's different this year than all the years before? We're looking for a guilty verdict. We're looking for a guilty verdict, and we're looking to see if all of the talk that took place and has been taking place after they saw what happened to George Floyd. If nothing does not happen, then we know uh, that we've got to not only stay in the street, 
but we have got to fight for justice. But I am very hopeful, and I hope uh, that we're going to get a verdict that is say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we, got, we cannot go away. And not just manslaughter, right? I mean... Oh, no, not manslaughter. No, no, no. This is, this is guilty for murder. I don't know whether it's in the first degree, but as far as I'm concerned, it's first degree. Congressman, what happens if we do not get, get what you just told? What should the people do? What should protesters on the street do? I didn't hear you. What happens? What should protesters do? Well, we, we got to stay on the street. Uh, and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we... So those comments by Congresswoman Maxine Waters came into the courtroom today. This is what Judge Peter Cahill had to say. ...situation. Obviously, I spent my weekend preparing for closing, closing uh, remarks, um, and I certainly can supplement the record with news articles. I can supplement the record with... The storylines of the particular shows that were brought to my attention. So there's, I'm making it to note the record at this particular point, and I can certainly supplement. Yeah, you can supplement the record with whatever media reports. I'm aware of the media reports. I'm aware that Congresswoman Waters was talking specifically about this trial and about the unacceptability of uh, anything less than a murder conviction and talk about being confrontational, but you can submit the press articles about that. This goes back to what I've been saying from the beginning. I wish elected officials would stop talking about this case, especially in a manner that is disrespectful to the rule of law and to the judicial branch and our function. I think if they want to give their opinions, they should do so in a respectful and in a manner that is consistent with their oath to the Constitution to respect a co-equal branch of government. Their failure to do so, I think, is abhorrent, but I don't think it has prejudiced us with additional uh, material that would prejudice this jury. They have been told not to watch the news. I trust they are following those instructions and that there is not in any way uh, a prejudice to the defendant beyond the articles that we're talking specifically about the facts of this case. A congresswoman's opinion really doesn't matter a whole lot. Terrain, I'm sorry. What the hell was the judge talking about right there as if Maxine Waters doesn't have the right to give her opinion? I have, I have no idea. He's talking about a congresswoman speaking to uphold the Constitution, and the right to protest is a constitutional right. These people have the right to gather and to speak their minds and their hearts in a civil way. He can't quiet her. So if you listen to the news all weekend on every conservative talk radio show, you heard commentate, commentators talking about the verdict and what was going to happen and people preparing for anticipated riots. You heard different people talking about this case. So why should Maxine Waters have to be silent? It, it, it makes no sense. This judicial officer, he overstepped the line by trying to dictate to another branch of government what they should do. When Maxine Waters, she never spoke of the court she never spoke of him personally, so he was far outside of, of the scope of what he should be doing from the bench today. But Monique, even if he, even if she did, she's not particip a participant in the trial. I mean, so to all then to say that, oh, you may now have a, a, a basis of an appeal. 
there's no basis for appeal based on what Maxine Waters said, because everything that everyone else is saying on television, that's having this conversation here, could be considered a basis for appeal using that logic. So she is not a party to this case. There is no um, gag order precluding anyone from Congress and even commenting. So where he's going with that is truly showing his slip is hanging. He's showing where he is as far as his political views and wanting to silence that woman. Monique? Huh. So I'm I'm of two opinions. I've I've already tweeted out one of them. It's it's odd to me that everyone from the current president and vice president of the United States to world leaders to local and state officials have made comments about the wrongfulness of of George Floyd's death, the hideousness of his killing and its criminality. Um, everyone has said something about that. So to call out this one. Congresswoman's opinion. Um, we know that 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 Congresswoman Waters can be a lightning rod, and those that apparently are of this judge's ilk um, can't resist the urge to comment. Uh, I'm I'm an, of another opinion, though, candidly, as as um, a, a career officer of the court, I understand that judges are very serious about the sanctity of juries, about protecting juries. And there was a conflating of any number of things in Congresswoman's comments where um, she was saying it should be guilty, guilty, guilty. And they asked her if it is not, what do we do? And that's when she said, you know, we stay in the streets, we do this, we do this. Well, I think we stay in the streets no matter what this verdict is. I think putting one uh, dirty cop in a jail cell doesn't fix anything except for one dirty cop went into a jail cell. And I think that this case was handled the way that justice requires in that the state brought appropriate charges. Um, Keith Ellison did an excellent job of leading the, the prosecution team that, that is volunteering their time. Uh, they did one of the best jobs I have seen prosecutors do in prosecuting a case, especially a case against police officers, and they have proven their case. So then it's in the hands of, of a jury. And I am not prepared to say that if one juror uh, hangs this, this, this trial and leaves them with a mistrial, that we stormed the streets because of a mistrial. That is the justice system that we supposedly all believe in. That is the Constitution in motion, not out of motion. And we know already it is harder than anything in the world to prosecute a police officer to actually get a guilty. And that's why from the beginning I've been saying, I don't care how good a job they do, I don't care how much this should be a slam dunk, it may not be. So I am one who wants measured expectations, and I am one who is consistently pointing out that there is a long game here. So the part where Congresswoman Waters was talking about the Justice and Policing Act and how we need those reforms, I'm with wholeheartedly. But anybody who's saying, if we don't get the right verdict here, then we storm the streets, I don't, I don't think that they're, they're thinking about this the way that we all have to in order to see real and lasting change. Candace, it's, it's just ludicrous to listen to that particular judge. She needs to respect the rule of law. I'm sorry, you're a judge. <laughs> did, yeah, the, did, you know, did the First Amendment somehow just uh, go out the window and she can't offer her perspective uh, and opinion? Listen, and she didn't tell us anything that we didn't know. If the verdict doesn't come down the way that the people 
and the masses wanted to come out, they're going to continue to hit the streets. There was really nothing that she added to what we already knew was going to happen if something doesn't happen in court in terms of a guilty verdict. Now, on the other side of this, you see what Eric Nelson is doing. He's got a file. It's about this thick, and it's called his appeal file. And he's got the fact that the plea deal was was uh, was was uh, told earlier than than it was supposed to be, or, or let go. The twenty-seven million dollars settlement was, you know, kicked two jurors off of off of the off the juror. He's got this. He's got the way that the prosecution was kind of um, uh, suggesting that they were lying or not telling the truth or not telling the whole story. So he's got to get it in because you know that appeal is coming. And so at the end of the day, that is what this was about. He's building that file, and it's not a very light file. Uh, And that's also what the judge's comments were about, because he's the one who could have sequestered the jury and chose not to. So if the jury has now heard things that he believes the jury shouldn't have heard, that's not the fault of the people who are out there using their free speech to say them. That's his responsibility, because he knew that he had a high-profile case where people were making all kinds of opinions, and if he wanted to ensure that the jury didn't hear anything while they were in trial or while they were deliberating... He had a very effective way of getting that done and chose not to. So that's the appealable issue. It's not the it's not the comments of the congresswoman. It's the judge who may have made an error. And that's if if we get any kind of conviction, that's that's going to be in the file. All right, folks. So the judge about that. Because the judge had the opportunity from the outset to set the tone for the jurors and to restrict what they had access to. So why this heightened concern today, based on one statement made by uh, by Maxine Waters, it seems to me that that they're just exaggerated. It's pretty hyperbolic, in my opinion. Maxine Waters has been pretty vocal about her expectation for this trial, the expectation for the treatment of the family, and the respect that needs to be shown to Black Lives Matter, Personally, I'm not a fan of any planned protest. Um, anyone who's talked to me knows that I wish the black community would go silent. They have planned for us to protest. They have planned for us to be in the street. And while they know that's our anticipated response, is our typical response, what would happen if we would be silent? The power in our silence. They wouldn't know what we're thinking and what we were doing. They've already planned for us to stay in the streets. I say we take a different approach and have a more impactful approach. But not everyone agrees with me with that. Clearly, Maxine Waters doesn't agree with that, and that's okay. But I think as a black community, we need to start thinking about where can we put power in our protests? Can we go silent and increase that power? All right, folks, I'm going to ask all three of you uh, this, this final question. It's now in the hands of the jury. Uh, do you believe that this jury, jury is going to come back with a guilty verdict for Derek Chauvin? Train you first. As I listened to the defense closing argument, I had to wonder about his perspective and what he saw in a juror that made him think that there was a juror in that box that would follow his line of closing. There had to be someone he was speaking to because you only need one. And that's the perspective that we don't have sitting out in America. The prosecution knows what jurors are looking at and their responses to the defense. The defense knows their responses, so we don't know that. I'm hopeful that based on the jury selection, that and based on um, the evidence, this is a rock solid case. The defense had an opportunity to take this Jenga block and poke holes in it and try to weaken the foundation of this case. They didn't touch it. They stayed at the top. They never hit the foundation of this case that Derek Chauvin is guilty of murdering George Floyd. So I anticipate that this verdict is going to come back um, at least on one charge of guilty. 
Candace. Second degree manslaughter all the way. This is an officer that was former officer that was negligent. He didn't even turn George Floyd over, even after someone who was a subordinate asked a couple of times, don't we need to turn him over? They blamed the streets that were 20 feet wide. They played carbon monoxide. They blamed everything except for the knee on the neck. Once George Floyd was in the realm of that officer, he was responsible for him and he let him die under his own neck. That is negligence. That is the threshold when you really boil down the second-degree manslaughter charge. He's going to get at least that, which we know sentencing averages. It's about four years, but there were some aggregating factors here. We had the aggregating factor of the uh, children who were there and that there might have been some cruelty involved. So even while the sentencing guidelines say he, on average, might get four years on that charge, he might get more with that aggravating factors that are involved. Money. I agree. It's it's all wishes and prayers, though, right now. Uh, I feel for, for all counsel who are sitting out and waiting for this as the world waits on it. I don't know that they will get the, the depraved mind that's necessary uh, for the top of the charge list. I think uh, I agree that second-degree manslaughter may be easier to reach, but hopefully at a minimum they will get to the bottom of the charge list and, and, and all be able to come to some agreement that they can't do a full and complete not guilty, but um, without being able to see and assess those jurors and, and to know whether there's been like one person sitting there frowning at the prosecution the whole time, not willing to take notes, not um, buying into any of it, we, we, we just can't tell. All right then. Uh, Terrain, Monique, Candace, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Roland. All right, folks, we come back uh, for this break. Fairfax County, 400 cases dismissed because of a shady cop and cops in Prince George's, Maryland. Folks, the DA says, I don't even want them testifying on the stand because I can't trust their word. All that next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. I believe that it's movement time again. In America today, the economy is not working for working people. The poor and the needy are being abused. You are the victims of power. And this is the abuse of economic power. I'm 23 years old. I work three jobs. Work seven days a week. No days off. They're paying people pennies on the dollar compared to what they profit. And it is time for this to end. Essential workers have been showing up to work, feeding us, caring for us, delivering goods to us throughout this entire pandemic. And they've been doing it on a measly $7.25 minimum wage. The highest check I ever got was literally $291. I can't take it no more. You know, the fight for 15 is a lot more than about $15 an hour. This is about a fight for your dignity. We have got to recognize that working people deserve livable wages. And it's long past time for this nation to go to 15 so that moms and dads don't have to choose between asthma inhalers and rent. I'm halfway homeless. The main reason that people end up in their cars is because income does not match housing cost. If I could just only work one job, I could have more time with them. It is time for the owners of Walmart, McDonald's, Dollar General, and other large corporations to get off welfare and pay their workers a living wage. 
and if you really want to tackle racial equity, you have to raise the minimum wage. We're not just fighting for our families, we're fighting for yours too. We need this. I'm going to fight for it until we get it. I'm not going to give up. We just need all of us to sit up as one nation and just fight together. Families are relying on these salaries and they must be paid at a minimum $15 an hour. $15 a minimum anyone should be making this ability to stay out of poverty. I can't take it no more. I'm doing this for not only me, but for everybody. We need 15 right now. Shortly after 9-11, America and its allies went to war in Afghanistan to defeat a terrorist stronghold. We accomplished that mission years ago. Trillions of dollars lost, over 2,000 Americans dead, countless Afghans dead. It's time to get out. Many presidents have tried to end the war in Afghanistan, but President Biden is actually going to do it. And by 9-11, over 20 years after the war was started, the last American soldier will depart, and America's longest war will be over. Promise made, promise kept. Hey, what's up? This is Marlon Wayans. No, it's not Kenan. No, or as some of y'all say, click nine. No, it's not Damien. It's really, da- it's not Damien, because I do not have a bald head. Um, it's one of the wins. It's not whinings uh, because they have been coming up to you. Hey, how you doing? I love the whinings. There's no BB and no CC in this family. There's Kiki and Damon. So I am one of them. Wayans uh, Brothers, or as you may want to call, fraternity population. Uh, there's the Chinese, and then there's the Wayans. We, there's so many of us. Seven Wayans was born during this drop. So you are watching my man, Roland Martin, who uh, really uh, is swagged out. I want to give a big shout-out to my man, Roland Martin, because he inspired the generation. He's the one that got Al Sharpton in the gym doing selfies. He got a <laughs> Reverend Al was like, oh, I see Roland trying to look like he got a little two-pack. I'm going to get him one better. He's the one that got Al doing the one-handed almost push-up <laughs> on the desk. <laughs> so Roland Martin is the inspiration behind that. So be sure to <laughs> tune in and watch. Roland Martin Unfiltered. Folks, in Fairfax, Virginia, more than 400 convictions may be overturned uh, there. A judge is moving to throw out the convictions because a former patrol officer is accused of stealing drugs from the police property room, planning them on innocent people during illegal traffic stops. Jonathan Freitag resigned in May of 2020 after the FBI joined Fairfax County in a criminal investigation after receiving a tip in July 2019. A year later, he was hired by the Brevard County Sheriff's Office in Florida, who found no disciplinary records in his file. Freytag was involved in 932 cases in his three years as an officer in Virginia. Brevard County has launched an investigation into the cases Freytag handled. He has denied any wrongdoing, and he has not been charged. Let's go to uh, my panel and talk about this here. I mean, this is uh, crazy. 
when you think about it. Uh, and so uh, Avis Jones DeWeaver, uh, leadership strategist, uh, joins us right now. We also are joined by Julian Malvo, uh, 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 president emerita and economist uh, at Bennett College, and will be joined uh, later by our third panelist. Uh, th th this is crazy, uh, uh, Avis, and and for all the people. Again, they go, oh, just a few bad apples. You're talking about the planting of drugs on people. And this guy gets another job. If you are a lawyer and you are disbarred, you don't get to easily just go to another state and keep practicing law. No, you lose your law license. Absolutely. This is ridiculous. First of all, that is just absolutely sadistic, uh, what he uh, did. Uh, we all know what the long-ranging implications of that are. You know, he probably got people convicted on felonies that stay on their records, precludes them even after serving their time of being able to get jobs oftentimes that will ask if you've ever been convicted of a felony. Uh, there are so many ways in which that has repercussions on your life, potentially for the rest of your life. So the fact that this man serially uh, framed people in this way is disgusting. And you're exactly right. Uh, the, the, the police in this nation are uniquely protected, uniquely protected from having to face personal responsibility for their illegal and immoral and just disgusting actions. This is why, once again, the Justice and Policing Act is so important, because one of the provisions of that act is to create a database where, where policemen who are fired due to misconduct uh, would, be, uh, would be kept there so that other police departments would know what happened. There are so many things wrong with this picture, it's just hard to even sum it up in one quick sentence. It's a whole bunch of things wrong, and they all need to be changed. Julian? This brother needs to. This boy needs to go put up under the jail, not in the jail, but up under the jail. This is some craziness. Uh, D.C. firefighter, at the time, a father of a five-month-old, was framed. Four hundred cases. But what this does tell us, and I think Avis is absolutely right, it tells us that this is a pattern in practice in policing. And we, in our community, can take it back to post-Reconstruction. We could look at the 1920s and 30s, where people were accused of attacking a police officer who was not attacked. Um, you know, there are just so many cases. The Justice and Policing Act not only must be passed. I'm, I'm you know, the, when the young people began to say defund the police, I was like, mm, I don't know about that. I'm there now. Let's just start over. This is fire all these Maryland farmers. Those who know me, <coughs> what I just fire all these Maryland farmers and start over. Require, as they do in Europe, uh, two years to three years of training. Make them have college degrees in a number of areas sociology, not just criminal justice, sociology, psychology. Turn them into human beings because too many of them, as we see from Derek Chauvin, are not. Um, look, we, we see examples of this all the time uh, involving uh, these involving these police officers. And, and the thing, and we've heard this talked about repeatedly, because we saw in the case of the cop who killed Tamir Rice, you cannot have a cop engage in this kind of activity and just easily be able to go find another job. Those folks should not be in law enforcement. They should not have a badge and a gun. 
there should be rolling some kind of registry for people who are so-called law enforcement officers that you do pass some national standard. And if you mess up, bluck up, that you then are removed from that registry. We don't have that. So as we saw with the killer of Tamir Rice, this boy goes from one county to another and kills a 13-year-old. That we see this over and over again. What really needs to happen is that we need to make sure that there's some nationalization. And I know those states' rights people hate that, but they loved enslavement, so that's another story. But these folks need to have a, we need to have a national standard that says, if you don't do this, you cannot be a so-called law enforcement officer. And this is not controversial, Avis, because the reality is we have it for doctors and, and lawyers. Yeah, it, it, it well, logically, it should not be controversial. Um, but the reality is it is because there is the uh, complicating factor of police unions in here who have completely bastardized the system. Uh, you know, it, the police unions, I believe, likely have a, have a lot to do. They have a lot to do with why a lot of police departments across the country find it very hard to fire people. Uh, not to say that they shouldn't do it anyway, but there it's not as simple as perhaps it is in other professions. Uh, and the police unions make sure that it's not that simple. We also need to get rid of qualified immunity. I know if I served prison time because he planned <coughs> something on me or somebody in my family did, I would want to sue him for every cent he got, right? We need Hello. to make sure that that's in place. And then the last question I have is, how come with the other place that he ended up, they said that they didn't see anything derogatory in his records? What happened with that? Was he allowed to resign or was he fired? And even if he uh, was allowed <coughs> to resign, why was there nothing written up about him in his record? Because everyone knows uh, that when all of these police officers who engage in malfeasance, like, as you mentioned, with Tamir Rice's killer, uh, when they resign, and even in his case, he was fired, right? They can easily go to another department, and if the paper trail isn't there, or people who aren't hiring them aren't don't really care about the paper trail or don't do the proper investigations around it, you can have that same malperforming and dangerous police officer just be bouncing around from one police department to another. The entire system needs to be reformed. And honestly, I do believe that a big part of that is with this particular act that's in Congress. And we need to do whatever we can to make sure that the Senate uh, is able to move in the direction that it needs to in order to pass it. Uh, well, absolutely right. That, sh that should uh, absolutely happen. Uh, and I think we're just seeing uh, just, just, far, just far, far too much of this. Uh, I got to ask all three of you, uh, I talked about uh, Eugene Craig Jones as well. I talked about this here with our, uh, with our panel excuse me, with our legal panel, uh, all of this brouhaha. Republicans are calling for uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters uh, to be censured, removed from Congress. You got that nutcase out of Georgia. Uh, she claims she's going to put forth this deal. The New York Post is talking about, oh, my God, how, how bad she is. I mean, Eugene, I I'm really sick and tired of these, of these fake... Uh, this fake outrage of the folks on the right looking for anything and everything, and now le the latest is Maxine Waters, Congresswoman Maxine Waters. Listen, if Kevin McCarthy wants to censor people, he needs to start with half of his caucus. He needs to start with former President Trump. He needs to start with half of the Trump team that's operating with former President Trump right now. Um, you know, if, if that's the route he wants to take, he's going to open up his entire half of his caucus, at least half of his caucus, to um, censorship. Um, or impeachment or removal from committees. 
Um, it's not a path that he wants to go down um, because he want to take this out of context. You know, um, there are actual things that like the actual violence, like the actual death. I mean, look, this is the Blue Lives Matter caucus. Um, there were blue lives that were lost as a result of words of members from his caucus. So if that's the word, that's where he wants to take, so be it. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. I, I, I just, I mean, I'm just sort of laughing uh, when I watch these fools, uh, Avis, because if you really want to talk about some comments being made, it's a long line of hacks on the, on, on the right. Absolutely. I mean, hypocrisy might as well just be the middle name of that party. The grand old hypocrisy party. I mean, that's that's what I'm going to start calling them right now. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, you don't have to look that far back when you might recall someone who later ran for president ran an entire ad in the New York Times uh, saying that young boys who were accused of a, a, a you know of a, of a rape that they could that they didn't commit should basically uh, be murdered. Right? Uh, you don't have to look far back for that. And uh, I don't hear anybody looking back and castigating um, the former person who resided at, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue uh, as in any way being wrong for doing that among this ilk. So they, they, are, they are forever doing this, number one. Number two, in terms of being hip hypocrites, number two, uh, you know, the bottom line is uh, Congresswoman Waters remains someone that they have a unique uh, level of disdain for. Uh, a lot of this, to me, has to do, obviously, with her boldness, her bombasticness, her unapologetic uh, blackness. But I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that she is a black woman. Uh, and they cannot stand, they, they literally cannot stand to see a free black woman who is willing to speak her mind. The reality is she said nothing that won't happen. We all know that if this particular um, decision goes the way that it might go, in terms of letting this murderer get away with murder, there will be protest. Uh, that's not a, a grand revelation. Uh, but once again, they want to sort of drag her name through the mud, claiming that she's doing something wrong, which, last I heard, even a congressperson has First Amendment rights, and she's within her rights to express her opinion. Julian? Don't mess with Max. That's all I have to do. Don't mess with Max. She is our shero. She is our role model and our leader. This is nonsense. If they want to throw somebody out, out of Congress, try that little um, Barbie doll from Georgia. I forgot her name. Um, but anyway, I did remember it, but I'm not going to call it. Um, but that's who you need to throw out of Congress. Maxine Waters has stood up for us over her entire congressional career. She has made it clear that you do not mess with Black people. She was out there when those police officers brutally beat Rodney King and were exonerated. And she's going to be out there as long as white police officers brutally beat black people and are exonerated. She was speaking into the realm of possibility. If Chauvin is acquitted, folks going to blow. She said, as Ava said, she just spoke our reality. I mean, I will take my over 65-year-old behind to the streets behind that one, and I've been in the streets in a little while, and a lot of other people will. This is an absurdity that the defense is trying to make this case of, oh, well, maybe he had a big heart. Oh, maybe he did this. Maybe he, you know, smelled the exhaust pipe. She just said what black people are thinking. This cannot happen. Don't mess with Max. 
Uh, let's go to uh, Maryland, where Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy has created a system to keep track of police credibility. Brady List will identify officers who will not be allowed to testify on behalf of the state based on their discipline records. Prince George's County State's Attorney Aisha Braveboy joins us right now. I'm glad to have you back on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Thank you so much, Roland. Great to Cre credibility is critically important. We have seen other cases where police officers have knowingly lied on the witness stand. Judges in Chicago admonish folks for doing so. Um, what happened here? Uh, did it, how bad did it get for you to say, I got to create a list of cops who I simply can't trust on the witness stand? Well, you know, we've always had the, the responsibility and the duty to disclose information that may tend to impeach a government witness. Um, and so that was as a result of Brady versus Maryland, the 19th Supreme Court case requiring the state to turn over exculpatory and impeachment material to defense counsel. But what I decided was that, you know, looking at our cases, we want our cases to be about the underlying case, not about the credibility of the officer. So we looked at um, the officers who have lied on the stand, who have exhibited bias, and we've determined that those individuals will no longer be sponsored by my office to serve as witnesses in our cases. How many folks are we talking about? How many cops? So we have about 15 that we have determined that we will not call to testify in cases. That list could potentially grow depending on the officer's behavior. This is really all about holding our officers accountable like our citizens and our residents expect us to. We want to be represented and have the law enforced by people who have integrity. And as the prosecutor, I have to trust the information and the investigations conducted by these officers. And so it is my duty to also hold them accountable and send the message to all of the departments that operate in my community that I will not tolerate uh, officers who are not credible, who are biased, who exhibit prejudice against members of our community. So here's what jumps out at me. If there are officers who have knownly lied on the stand, how are they still cops? Well, that, that's a really good question, and that is really a question for the department, for the administration, how they will choose to move forward. But we are in a system right now, oh, we are operating in a system where the, the system is being reformed in every way. And so what has been tolerated in the past can no longer be tolerated. We're setting the standard in our office, and we're hopeful that the rest of our law enforcement community will follow suit. And um, what has been the response from the police department, uh, from the leadership regarding this list, and also the police union? Well, I can tell you that the uh, department did take uh, our actions very seriously. I believe that they have removed those officers from uh, the from any duty that involves uh, interfacing with the citizens and residents of our county. And uh, the union, of course, is not extremely happy about this move. Uh, however, I think that everyone has to agree that there's one set of rules. They have general orders. They are required to be truthful. And if they are not truthful and if they act in a way that brings upon a question about their credibility and their ability to do their job in an unbiased way, uh, that's on them. And so my job is to do my job, which is to hold everyone accountable. Just like I hold individuals accountable for committing crimes in our community, I have to hold our officers accountable for integrity and, and for being good 
honest people who can investigate and enforce the law fairly. Um, this is uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're seeing this focus all across the country on uh, police accountability. Um, and, and there's so much trust that is placed in the words of police officers. And we've seen so many other cases. Uh, the, 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 the Laquan McDonald case, where they lied, just flat out lied. Uh, we've seen uh, 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 other cases, recent cases, where officers lie. They just make stuff up. And, and, and I just think that is there has to be repercussions. We were just talking about the Fairfax County story, uh, where they're talking about four, throwing out 400 cases because of the actions of, of this police officer. And I don't understand, again, how people act as if, well, that's just, you know, that's just one or two. No. I mean, 15 is considerable uh, for a list like this. Well, and let me just put it into context. We have about 1,500 police officers in Prince George's County and on the Prince George's County Police Department. We also have 26 municipalities within our county, and so each of them have uh, police forces. So while the majority of the individuals who are on the list are from Prince George's County Police Department, there are other municipal departments that have officers that uh, we believe are questionable and will not place on the stand. Uh, again, I think prosecutors have a duty and obligation to set the standard. We are the top law enforcement office within our jurisdictions. And so we have the responsibility to say what will and will not be acceptable. And I believe that the departments that are within our jurisdiction will uh, take heed to what we are doing and will make changes in their policies, their practices, and how they treat officers who have credibility or bias issues. So we're hopeful by setting this tone, sending this message, that there will be changes. All right, then. Prince George's County State's Attorney, Aisha Braveboy. We certainly appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, then, folks. Got to go to break. We come back. We're going to talk about this ridiculous, crazy bill signed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, an anti-protester bill. The Dream Defenders say they are not done fighting this. That is next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. You see what's happening. It's not just in Georgia. It's here in Florida and in 43 states across the country. Last year, I had my voting rights restored with an assist from the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. I did it for myself, but also for my future. Having children, I realized I could make a difference. So I got my voting rights restored, got registered to vote, and I got my vote in through the Postal Service since I was working out in California during the football season. Now, they're trying to undo that. And the hard work of so many others. They're taking away drop boxes, making it hard to vote by mail. And they're still trying to make returning citizens pay for a poll tax just to vote. Now that we know what they're trying to do, let's stop them. Here's how. Call your legislators. Call your members of Congress. And start by signing our petition at morethanavote.org slash protect. The fight is not over. We're just getting started. Help us help you and protect our power. Hi, I'm Kim Burrell. Hi, I'm Carl Painting. Hey, everybody, this is Sherry Shepard. You're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. HB1, known as the Anti-Riot Bill, also uh, is uh, signed into law by the governor of Florida, folks. Uh, it makes protesting a felony. Also allows local police to challenge budgets, uh, opens cities to liability for poor riot control, and creates or strengthens penalties 
against those it deems rider. It also, uh, riders. It also protects all monuments in Florida. In a statement, DeSantis said, in part, if you riot, loot, harm others, particularly law enforcement, you're going to jail. We're not going to end up like Portland. The bill has been signed and takes effect immediately. Joining us now is Naila Summers, co-executive director of the Dream Defenders. Naila, glad to have you on Roller Martin Unfiltered. So, explain this bill. I mean, this, oh, it's, it's anti-riders, oh... Uh, but this actually goes much further than that. Much further. You know, this is Ron DeSantis's uh, campaign promise uh, to his base. He announced this back in September of 2020, uh, you know, in the middle of a summer of uprising after he ignored the pandemic for months and months and months, right? People were in the streets grieving, hurting. And this was his answer. This is what he came to Florida with, HB1. Uh, at the time, he called it the most comprehensive bill of its kind. You know, it's, it's a combination of anti-defund legislation, anti-protest legislation. Um, you know, it gives free reign to vigilantes to hit protesters with their cars. Um, it also protects Confederate monuments. So it's just, he threw the kitchen sink at us uh, here in Florida. And, and you know, it's... It's what he's telling his base that he can do with us. Um, and it's his campaign promise. One of the things that um, uh, that, that was even crazier, uh, he wanted to expand the state stand your ground law. And this is from the Miami Herald, uh, that uh, to justify the use of force against people, go to my computer, please. Uh, against the people who looted or impaired businesses and would have barred people from getting state benefits or state jobs if they were ever convicted of participating in a violent or disorderly assembly. But uh, a state senator said there were parts of it we felt were not appropriate to fit within this bill. I mean, th this is um, uh, what they were doing. And what they're doing here, uh, again, what he's doing here is... Um, is this mob intimidation statute, uh, first-degree misdemeanor, for a group of three or more people to try and change someone's viewpoints by using violence or the threat of violence, punishable by a sentence up to one year in jail. Uh, the law will also criminalize the practice of publishing a person's personally identifying information, such as addresses or phone numbers, to harass them online. Floridians will also not be allowed to post bail until they make their first appearance in court when arrested for a number of crimes, including theft and burglary during a state of emergency. Uh, then the one that's interesting here, under the law, any person who, without permission, tears down any type of memorial dedicated to a historical person, an entity, or an event, or a series of events, would face a second-degree felony punishable by up to 15 years in prison. In prison, with no bail, right? And we saw this all over the country. People in the streets were saying, we cannot revere these old monuments, and that was one of the first things that uh, Ron DeSantis mentioned in his bill, is, is locking people up, holding people accountable for defacing monuments. And we know that in Florida, that absolutely means Confederate statues, Confederate flags. They're all over this state. And so, yeah, 15 years is what he's telling us Not if, if anybody were to deface anything. I mean, that's writing with a marker, that's, you know, covering it up with a flag, that's anything. Now, here's what I also find to be real interesting. Republicans love talking about local control, local control, local control, big government. Go back to my computer, please. The law allows state's attorneys in each judicial circuit or a member of a city commission to appeal local police budget reductions. 
The appeal will be subject to review by the governor's office, which ultimately would rule whether it needs further review. Okay. The, the Herald article goes on to say, if it does, a separate commission, which includes the governor and the Florida cabinet, will have the final say on whether the local government should approve, amend, or modify a spending plan. How in the hell <laughs> can the state tell a city elected by taxpayers how they should govern their city when it comes to the police? All under the guise of protecting law enforcement. Roland, that's, that's, that's the cover for this whole thing. This monumental, you know, violation of our First Amendment rights in Florida. Uh, he's saying it's to protect law enforcement, all of it. So a municipality, a city could say, you know what, we want 10 less cars, police cars this year. We're going to put that little money somewhere else. And it would have to go through the state attorney. And that was an amendment that got added because originally that approval had to go all the way up to, to the governor. Um, so it's all, it's all a ploy, you know, today when he announced it, it was the first thing he talked about this. It's what we call preemption, right? Where the state overrules the local. Uh, and it's the first thing that he talked about this morning when he announced the bill, he was so proud of it. So proud to be able to overrule cities and we are not going to have defund the police here in Florida. Um, so, you know, that's, that's what's happening right now. And it's, it's just such a violation. I have to laugh. We've been fighting this bill for, for months since he announced it in September. And so I laugh to keep from crying. Um, how do y'all plan to respond to it? How do you plan to fight it? Well, we're definitely going to see him in court. Absolutely. Uh, expect that very soon. And then, you know, he can legislate this racism if he wants to, but people are still going to be in the streets. We're still going to be fighting injustice everywhere all the time. I mean, he did this ahead of jury deliberations today, right? Like, the timing of this is exact, it's precise. He knew what he was doing. So we're going to keep our people safe. We're going to teach people about the bill, right? We got to tell them what their situation is now in Florida, what the consequences are, the risks, but also figure out ways to keep each other safe when we're out there because he's just not going to be able to stop this movement. All right, the Nyla Summers, co-executive director of the Dream Defenders. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Ron. What we're seeing here, Eugene, is Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, running for re-election next year, and really, this is all about 2024. This is all about him trying to appeal uh, to these right-wing conservatives, uh, trying to be as, as Trumpian as he possibly can. That, that's, that's all this comes down to. Um, you know, this is a. 2024 re-election and it's also a 2020, you know, a 2022 re-election and 2024 presidential run that he's laying out. Um, you know, this this is where the dangerous of like some of the wildest parts of the far right come in play because we have people like DeSantis in power that are able to actually put some of these things in motion and the law and the policy. Um, people get hurt, you know, um, you know, people are going to be hurt by this. Um, but, you know, I do think that it looks with, with, my knowledge of the Constitution, the First Amendment. Uh, I would love to see how this plays out in court. Um, you know, you, you cannot, you know, uh, 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 make illegal a citizen's right to uh, address grievances um, against their government under the First Amendment, and that's exactly what he does here. Um, what do you make of this, um, Julian? Again, this this crazy, outlandish bill uh, that's now signed into law in Florida. Well, crazy and outlandish are the nicest things we can say about it. But here's the other piece, Roland. Uh, this will go to court. 
but it will go to a Supreme Court that's inclined against citizens. So there's a fight that's going on. I'm so happy that you had Daela on to talk about this. But the fact is that 43 states have figured out ways to restrict citizen rights, from voting rights to other rights. And we saw this before in Congress, where people want to send you to jail because you protested. Now, they didn't send the fools who stormed the Capitol uh, to jail until after a while. And they still haven't found all of them. They could find them if they wanted to. So I think that, you know, um, Avery said something, I think, in a previous segment, segment about hypocrisy. I hop. You know, they think it's pancakes. It's International Hypocrisy Operations Program. And that's what we have here. We have hypocrisy and more. But um, I think that people, the more they do this craziness, the more essentially girded people are to say, oh, no. Oh, hell no. Oh, not here. That's how the people came out in Georgia to vote for Warnock and Ossoff. And that's going to be how they come out in Florida to ensure that DeSantis gets a one-way ticket to someplace with double hockey sticks. The thing that trips me out again, it was over and over and over, and how Republicans love to talk about, again, uh, sticking government's nose and everything. But for them, basically what they're trying to do is, like Alabama and Mississippi, telling cities, you can't, uh, you know, you can't touch monuments, uh, we control that. But to sit here and now tell a city they can't make their own determination on how they spend the city's money on the police? Come on. You on mute. I see that Eugene had it exactly right. Uh, when he was talking about the fact that DeSantis right now, honestly, he's just trying to set himself up for a presidential run. He's trying to be as outlandish as he's trying to out Trump Trump, really. And, you know, I see him as trying to make himself the quote unquote heir apparent to the Trump crazies. And so that means that he is doing all of this ridiculous. You remember how extra he was with the whole COVID situation and, you know, how we still have COVID running amok down there, cannot trust one statistic out of that state uh, because they have intentionally diluted the data so you can't show how badly it's run amok down there. And this is just another way in which he's literally looking to kill people. Uh, this is a... a the, the crazies have taken over the Republican Party, and the crazies of the crazies are the ones who are now trying to get in leadership of this new sort of ridiculous, insane wing of that party. So as, as ridiculous and as dangerous as this law is, and as all of those things that are happening all over the country right now in terms of everything that's going on with voting rights, all of those things um, are outgrowths of this really off-the-rails, right-wing, white supremacist, uh, just deadly and dangerous leanings of a Republican Party that is determined to do anything to hold on to power, to take power, and literally being willing to kill anyone who does not agree with their political leanings. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just sort of laughable as we continue to see uh, what they're doing. Let's now talk about another uh, outlandish action with cops. In Massachusetts, an officer of the Milton Police Department will be prosecuted for assaulting one of her son's friends and her husband during a sleepover at her home in September. Patricia Leo is accused of criticizing her son's black friend because he supported the Black Lives Matter movement and called her son's Hispanic friend an immigrant. 
At some point during the night, Leo allegedly asked the Hispanic boy to leave. She allegedly punched him, punched her husband in the nose, and then called the black boy ignorant and brainwashed because he supported the Black Lives Matter movement. The police officer with the Milton Police Department for nearly 20 years. She's been on administrative leave since October. Her arraignment is set for May. Um, yo ass got to go. Brother, why is she not in your crazy there, ass white people? There's no way she can be a cop, though. Why is she not in your crazy ass white people? Because I got another crazy ass white person. A crazier. <laughs> they're, they're, they're <laughs> but anyway, their levels are crazy. <laughs> child protective services should be at her house. Uh, and they should take her child someplace safe. And, um, yeah, a police officer for 20 years assaults a child because she doesn't like his political views? This is insanity. I mean, this is total insanity. Uh, maybe we should have, like, three crazy-ass white people per show. Uh, I don't get it. Uh, it's, it's, it's absolutely uh, ludicrous, but uh, to me, uh, yo, you, you punch your own husband in the nose because, because you're a bigot? Yeah, you might have more than just an arraignment. You might be talking between a divorce attorney. Hey, folks, uh, some breaking news here. Go to my computer, please. Leadership Conference on Civil Rights just posted this. Uh, breaking, Senator Schumer just filed closure on Vanita Gupta's nomination, moving forward her associate attorney general nomination and setting up a final vote as soon as Wednesday. It's time to confirm Gupta this important Justice Department position. Civil rights can't wait. And so it looks like uh, she will get that vote on Wednesday to be, uh, to be confirmed. Then, of course, last week, Christian Clark had her uh, U.S. Senate uh, hearing as well. And so, look, we're finally getting some action on moving these women in the Department of Justice, the top uh, top two uh, positions, and really focusing on civil rights in the DOJ. Avis? Yeah, well, it's, it's good to see that. Um, also, super proud of Christian Clark. Um, Actually, personally, I would have liked to have seen her as attorney general, but that's just me. Um, I, 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 will, I will say that, you know, it, it's about time uh, that we have a team at the Justice Department that really embodies the word justice uh, rather than corruption uh, and just ridiculousness, which is what we're uh, having to, you know, still have some hangover from in terms of the last administration. And so I'm hoping that both of these uh, nominees are able to swiftly uh, be able to be confirmed uh, so that we can have that, that more full team in place to do all of the work that we know needs to be done uh, to undo a lot of the mess that they inherited and also to live up to all the challenges that we face today and will certainly continue to face in the future. Um, Eugene. Look, get them confirmed. I mean, let's speed it up. Let's get them done. Um, I mean, you know what the votes are going to be. Um, you know, you got the majority right now. Let's just ram it through. Um, you know, Republicans are going to be obstructionists. going to, you know, put up whatever roadblocks they possibly can procedurally. But, um, you know, at this point, let's just get them done and get them through. Julian? I absolutely agree. I'm with Avis. Kristen Clark could have been the attorney general. Uh, not she had been. But, uh, you know, Biden was doing payback on Merrick Garland in terms of what happened to him with the Supreme Court. Both Kristen and Vanita Gupta deserve to be in the positions they've been nominated for. And if Republicans can't cross the line on this, you know what? Smuck them. Um, we, you know, if Democrats hang together, and I hope that um, that Quisling from West Virginia uh, doesn't start flipping and flopping, um, 
But if the if Democrats can hang together on this, we will have some very good people in the Justice Department. It will be justice, not just us white people. Uh, I got to I got to ask I got to run this by y'all real quick here. Uh, so uh, Kroger is having a few issues, y'all, because um, uh, somebody posted a story here uh, on social media where Kroger was closing two Southern California stores over four dollar per hour hero pay ordinance. Kroger then responds with this tweet. Grocery stores operate on razor thin margins and these mandates increase our operating costs by 20 to 30 percent, depending on market, putting any struggling store in jeopardy. OK, folks saw that and then, ooh, they decided to whoop their ass. First of all, this is the CEO pay for the Kroger CEO, Rodney McMullen. He made $21.1 million in fiscal year 2019, all right? So that, that's they, they hit him with that, okay? All right, so uh, so let me show you this here. Y'all gonna really crack up after this one here. Uh, then uh, they also posted uh, this about Kroger. Kroger dropped in this statement, Kroger's um, strong fourth quarter performance and how well that they did, okay? So they hit him with those receipts on social media as well. But this is the one that I really cracked up. Uh, Kroger had a conversation with investors. Their fiscal 2020 highlight, identical sales without fuel grew, without fuel grew 14.1%. Digital sales grew 116%. Uh, their brand sales are 26.2 billion. Their operating profit was $2.8 billion adjusted. FIFO operating profit of 4.1 billion. It's a little hard, uh, Eugene, to make the argument, oh my God, $4 per hour for employees increase is gonna somehow drive us out of business when you did $2.8 billion last year. I mean, look, um, you know, I'm not privy to how Kroger operates their business model. I know, uh, you know, some supermarket chains uh, operate on a store-by-store -store basis, although they may have a parent company, um, but, you know, most supermarkets are small businesses. Um, many of them are franchises. Um, and, you know, while the corporate Kroger Corporation made their $2.8 billion across all their stores, um, what may affect one market and what may affect one market one way may affect something a different way. But it's not wise, Julian, to try to clap back some folks bringing up, oh, how much, oh, this is just going to cause us, this is going to raise our expenses 20 30% when you're touting your numbers to Wall Street? You know, Roland, here's the thing. Food costs have gone up. Anybody who has gone to the grocery store in the last year has seen food prices tick up for any number of COVID reasons, but for other reasons. Um, and this man is making 789000 more than the average employee. This is absurd. Eugene, I'm going to have to dismiss your argument out of hand when you talk about, well, store by store by store by store. It's a corporation. It's a national and international corporation that is essentially making money from hungry people, from people who need food. And the heroes pay that the counties have asked for is nothing more than fair. When we look at what's been going on, these supermarket people, despite COVID, have gone to work, wear their masks, do their things, restock the shelves, take care of us when we check out, and often are subject to abuse. I, mean, I was at a grocery store the other day, Roland, I'm gonna take your advice one day and start carrying my camera around. 
I did tell this white person, I said, have you ever heard of Roland Martin? She said, why? I said, because you would be a crazy-ass white person. But anyway, <laughs> she would not put her mask on. And I said, ma'am, would you please put your mask on? She told me no. <laughs> and um, my, my uh, phone was in my pocket. I couldn't get to it in time. But long story short, I've seen these employees ask people to wear their masks. They won't do it. $4 is the least we can do for them. Kroger is full of it. I have never st stepped my foot in a Kroger, but believe me, after this, I won't do it again. Uh, it's just never... It's just sometimes you just want to just keep your mouth shut, Avis, uh, when you're responding to people on social media, because they will pull the receipts out on you real quick. No, serious receipts here. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, I was looking to try to look up those numbers again. Was that 2 or $4 billion in profit? Uh, operating profit, $2.8 billion. So roughly $3 billion in profit. Pro profit. That's like after expenses, bro, okay? Nearly $3 billion in profit. And they are sitting here whining about providing heroes pay. Let's also put in the context a couple of things. Particularly when this pandemic situation started, the data that I've seen around consumer spending is there was a huge, huge jump in consumer spending right at the beginning, and most of that jump was with grocery stores. Remember, people were going, stocking up, getting everything, all yep. the paper, all that stuff. Then what we've seen since then is we know that the people who were those essential workers in grocery stores were literally putting their lives on the line. Some grocery store workers have literally caught COVID and died. Uh, during this period. It is a dangerous job to be working at a grocery store in the middle of a pandemic. Hello. So th th the fact that these people are dragging their feet around providing an extra four bucks an hour for heroes pay, which I do believe that literally does describe a hero if you're willing to risk your life so other people can eat, okay? Uh, when you're running around here trying to brag about the fact that you have nearly $3 billion in profits... It's absolutely ridiculous. This should be a public relations disaster uh, for Kroger, and I'm hoping that those uh, sleuths on social media do everything that they can to make sure that it is. All right, folks. Uh, this weekend, a deadly weekend in Kenosha, Wisconsin, a suspect is in custody connected with a shooting at a local tavern. Three people died and three others were injured. Police in Austin, Texas, arrested 41-year-old Stephen Nicholas Broderick, a former Travis County Sheriff's Office detective, suspected of killing three people. Last year, Broderick was charged with the sexual assault of a child. And in Chicago, a seven-year-old girl was shot six times on Sunday as she and her father waited in the drive-thru of a McDonald's. The child was pronounced dead at the hospital while her father is in serious condition. No one has been um, arrested, but police believe the shooting uh, is uh, gang-related. What's, what's, what's strange about this is uh, over the weekend, we saw these conversations taking place, um, uh, Julian, with uh, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House. Um, and, and he was asked uh, in one of these appearances with regards to, you know, his, um, his thoughts on the shootings. This, to me, is, was just maddening. Listen to this. But I, I first want to start uh, with the moment that we're in in this country. We've had yet another mass shooting. Uh, Thursday night, a couple overnight, eight people in Indianapolis, that's the one on Thursday, uh, were killed. 47 mass shootings in the United States in just over the last month. And I know you know this. Polls show the vast majorities of Americans support at least some new gun restrictions. When you were speaker, the, there were 20 first graders who were killed in Newtown, Connecticut. 
Looking back now, do you regret not passing new gun laws then? And do you want to see Republicans come to the table now, at least, to pass something? Well, back uh, when Newtown happened, uh, we couldn't find common ground with the other side. And, uh, you know, I heard the earlier segment, and hopefully uh, there's uh, some common ground to be found. Uh, I know that uh, Senator Pat Toomey has been working on this uh, across the aisle, trying to come to some agreement. And hopefully they'll find uh, some common ground, because uh, this is, uh, it's, frankly, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking. Uh, I think it's embarrassing uh, uh, our country to the rest of the world. And uh, we've got to find a way to deal with this problem. So this would be a top priority for you were you st if you were still Speaker of the House? Well, if, uh, but I'm not. So those in power uh, now are going to have to figure out uh, what can be done. Uh, it's not about what everybody wants. It's a matter of what can be accomplished in a bipartisan way. You know, it really pisses me off, Eugene, when politicians who didn't do a damn thing when they had the power now want to comment when they're out of office. I mean, that's, that's the nature of politicians. Um, you know, politicians that just give it to you straight are very, very far and few between um, because, you know, you don't want any friends or uh, appease people that way. Um, you know, what he probably should have just said straight up was that, you know, we probably need to find a way that, you know, to deal with, uh, you know, mass shootings and gun violence that still protects Second Amendment rights. Um, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's probably the conversation that needs to take place. What he should have said, Avis, was I didn't do my damn job when I was there because I was trying to kiss the ass of the NRA. Absolutely. And now that I'm a punk, <laughs> I can, and I'm out of office, I can sit here and claim that, oh, well, those people who are there now should work in a bipartisan way now that we know that his whole party, quote-unquote, is now run by the crazies who aren't at all interested in any sort of bipartisan action on anything. Uh, so it's very safe and, and very convenient that he feels this way now. Um, it, it, it is, once again, it, it shows profiles and cowardice. Uh, we see this a lot uh, from politicians, but particularly those uh, in the Republican Party who are now no longer there or who are about to resign. And right at the very end, when they're about to resign, they may develop a little bit of a little teeny bit of courage, maybe the size of a mustard seed to say something's wrong here. Uh, but the bulk of them uh, who are in power right now, who see ridiculous happening, ridiculousness happening right now in this dire issue, are still too afraid to do anything or say anything about it. And we are living in a country that day after day are experiencing bloodbaths because we have politicians who are afraid to stand up and make the movements that they need to make in terms of legislation to put an end to this nonsense. Julian. You know, there's an intersectionality here going on. It's not just about the laws, although the laws are extremely important. It's not just about the action that Republicans, and they're not a party, they're a cult but the, that those people take. But it's also about why are these people, especially when it's young white men, um, running around shooting stuff up? When you look at Indianapolis, I mean, the dude was mentally ill. His mama called the FBI and said, come do something with this child. He had two long shotguns. So I, I, there is something going on in our nation that's corrosive, and we can't deal with it until we deal with a set of other issues which, frankly, revolve, are not solely about and not grounded in 
but revolve around issues of race and people like that Marjorie person, um, this whole notion of white exclusion, um, the notion that they believe that they're being written out. So when they believe they're being written out, they cling tenaciously to symbols of whiteness, like guns, like Confederate statues. We can talk at the top of it about, okay, um, IDs, background checks, and all that. Fine. If you want a gun, you can find a gun. And so I think that our nation is up for a reckoning. I don't think that anybody is better suited to do it than a Joe Biden, the old white man who started out kind of someplace and is now in the right place with a good VP. But this, there's a reckoning that has to happen. And until we have that reckoning, we're going to keep seeing this stuff. You talked about uh, whiteness. Well, the reality is uh, that is really the subject of a new book uh, that we talk about next in our book club. White evangelicals play a powerful role in the disunion of today's American political scene uh, and also the role they have in the Republican Party. Dr. Anthea Butler, she's the author of a new book. It is called White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. And she joins us uh, right now. This is the book right here. Again, uh, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. Dr. Butler, glad to have you on here. And, and the reality is this here, we see it constantly. We saw it with Donald Trump, uh, how they sucked up to him. Uh, the racist things that he said, they didn't care. Xenophobic things, whatever, don't care. The attack on Muslims, don't care. Uh, and that these white evangelicals, these white conservative evangelicals, uh, it's more about whiteness than it is about Jesus. That is absolutely correct, Roland. Thank you for having me tonight. I, I wanted to show this as a history in this book because I think it's really important for everyone in America to understand that evangelicalism, the foundation, has been racism since the 19th century and even before that, but especially for the 19th to the 21st century. And the ways in which they've used morality to shield the kind of power that they want and the ways that they have placed themselves within the Republican Party, I think is important for where we have been and where we're about to go in this country right now. And, and the reality is, uh, I'll give a perfect example. Um, you have um, Ralph Reed. He has his uh, faith and freedom or freedom and faith, whatever the hell they call it, um, annual deal. And uh, there have been a number of times I've gone on his uh, list, and it's all of these Republican candidates come through, all these Republican speakers. And uh, I've often tweeted them saying, boy, I noticed, I said, for a so-called faith conference, y'all ain't got one session on poverty or any of the stuff Jesus talked about. Uh, and... What, and, and, it's, and it's amazing how their business interests are the business interests, their interests on all these other issues, and it's not about faith, but they use, they use that Bible to bludgeon others when it comes to the culture wars. No, that's absolutely correct. I mean, because the number one thing is about how do you get the power and how do you get the money. I mean, I think one of the things that people need to understand is that all this time when evangelicals were talking about abortion, they were talking about same-sex marriage, they were talking about all these things that they detested and the kind of morality they wanted, I think one of the things that was really interesting from 2016 forward is that Donald Trump blew all that up and let everybody else see it. Some of us knew that before. But when you're talking about going to meetings with Ralph Reed, I mean, Ralph Reed had this, had this all down 
around back in the 90s. Before it was Faith and Freedom, it was Christian Coalition. And they started that off with them to tell people how they were supposed to vote, how they needed to think about the candidates. So they even had voters, guys, that you could take into the voting booth and vote just straight down the ticket like they wanted you to. So I think one of the things that we need to see about what evangelicals have been doing is this way in which they've ingratiated themselves politically, you know, first, if we're talking about the 19th century Democratic Party, and then in the 20th century, post-1964, um, where that has gone into the Republican Party and this marriage of sorts that they have had with each other. Um, and, and when we talk about, again, when, when you look at how they, how they weaponize uh, faith, uh, it's amazing how silent they are on issues of racial justice, uh, because again, whiteness precedes their faith. Yes, that is correct. And I think, you know, again, we have to see this from both the historical and the current perspective, the ways in which they talk about the family, for instance. Remember all the talk about the black family is broken. They don't have any parents. It's always about, you know, whether or not somebody is, um, you know, unwed mothers and things like this. And they put this on the black family. These are constructions that were made in the 19th century, but they have an effect in the 21st century because that's when they say, well, we're not going to give anybody any help. We're not going to do anything about schools. We're not going to do anything about any of these things that people are really, you know, really serious and need to think about. So what evangelicals have been doing is sort of doing like a bait and switch. They've been talking about morality all this time, but the reality is, is that they've been pulling away the kinds of social contracts that we need or even the things that you think about that are in the gospel that they should believe about feeding the poor, you know, taking care of the, the widows and all this other stuff. They haven't done any of this at all. This is all about, about power and about how they can have more power, A, and B, more money. Questions from my panel. I'll start first off with uh, Avis. You know, I find this to be a very intriguing topic because, you know, I may not be the best uh, expert on religion, but it seems very clear to me uh, that when you look at white evangelicals and how they behave versus what Christianity supposedly stands for, I'm so excited that your work is exposing it for what it is, being based in protecting whiteness versus Christianity. So my question to you is, in terms of being able to empower um, sort of... Uh, Christians beyond that specific ilk to maybe call them to task, you know, do you think that there is anything that, that other people could do who are maybe interested in perhaps um, showing the, a more strong fidelity to the, to the morality and to the standards of Christianity uh, to really call out these white evangelicals uh, as the, the, once again, the hypocrites that they are? are? Are there, you know, I'm thinking of Reverend Barber perhaps as an example, but other examples of how individuals who are more true to faith, uh, what they should do to call out this, this sort of strong voting block that really stands for nothing more than um, weaponizing their racism in the political sphere. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think one of the things you first have to do is if you are in any of these churches, you need to get up and go because basically you're subjecting yourself to this kind of thinking. And I think for a lot of black conservatives, especially, they have bought this hook, line and sinker. 
And that means that they are projecting this out into our black communities is one thing. Second, I think about pastors, not just about Reverend Barber, but, you know, Reverend Otis Moss, you know, Reverend Freddie Haynes and others who are preaching what I would call a more full gospel. And in terms of thinking about social justice, the kind of race issues. The other thing I think is really important is I think that black Christians need to stop playing these racial reconciliation games with white, with white evangelicals. I, I'm looking at right now what's happening with the Southern Baptist Convention and how they're having black pastors leaving like Dwight McKissick and others because they finally figured out that they had enough. What they didn't understand before is that they were pawns in this game of making those people look like they were less racist than they really are. And I think that's the other thing we have to call out is that the kinds of people who continue to support these white racist structures by saying we don't see color are in fact, you know, messing up their black brothers and sisters because, and as a matter of fact, the color that they see just as long as, just as much as white evangelicals is white. And that's the important part. I want to say one more thing, though. I think what's really important is that, you know, black churches know how to get out the vote. And right now, voting is in peril. And evangelicals are a part of this. There's a whole history about that with somebody named Paul Ryrick, who in the 1970s was working alongside at the beginnings of the moral majority with people like Jerry Falwell Sr. and others. One of the things he said was this, we don't want everybody to vote. You all think that there's supposed to be good government, but we don't want everybody to vote. We need to figure out how to make sure that these people don't vote. These people mean black people. And so black churches need to do more than just get souls out to the polls. We need to get involved in every area of po political action and activity and begin to do the same kinds of things that white evangelicals have been doing. Mm. Julian. Your work, my sister, is very powerful, as is your presentation, and we're grateful for you, especially when I think about the letter from the Brim Birmingham jail where Dr. King called out the white Christians who basically could not deal with racism. And so you're basically talking about some of the same things, these folks who refuse to deal with their own racism. I'm glad you ended your comment uh, from Avis with the commentary about voting and the polls. But what about the economic aspects, aspects of this? What can we do economically to bring these fundamentalist Christians to their knees, to make them think well, different about us. Yes, this is this is a little bit harder. And I, I need to say this because I think this is really important for your listeners to understand and for black Christians especially to understand. These organizations like Focus on the Family, Family Research Council, American Family Association, these are not just about talking about nice Christian things. These are powerful lobbying organizations that back up Republicans. Where are our powerful lobbying organizations? We have not given money in the same way to these kinds of things, first of all. And secondarily, we rely on the NAACP and other kinds of orgs to do that work. We need to start to think about how do we get organizations that are fighting for the things that we want. One of the things that people said, you know, in various administrations, I'm not going to pick on anybody right now, is that black people bring out the votes for you, but we don't get the things that we want. And I think that one of the reasons why is because we have to have a concerted organization about how we do that and how to put the pressure 
on lawmakers and others and people in your own community. Right now, people in my home state of Texas are fighting about voting right now. They're trying to get this thing so that they don't lock down things like they've locked it down in Georgia. And I think that's where we need to start to train our energies and that churches will have to think about how do they get involved because this is disenfranchising black people. This is a way in which we're not being able to go to move forward. One more thing. I think a lot of times what we don't even consider are the ways in which white evangelicals are embedded in law enforcement and how that works out. This whole Blue Lives Matter thing, the ways in which, you know, um, you know, uh, the police get sacralized, this organization that was raising money for that boy in Wisconsin that went and shot two people after the police shooting, that's a Christian organ, white Christian organization raising almost a million dollars for a kid who went with a gun and shot people indiscriminately. Now, I ask you, how do we get through all of this? Well, one thing we have to do is to begin to realize that these organizations are there and that, again, if you are a black person, stop giving money to this and start to think about the ways in which you can empower organizations that are fighting for the rights of people in a much more broad way than just these narrow ways that you have been. Because I think a lot of people out there are giving their 10% to white churches and white leaders that don't need their money. Eugene. I appreciate you being here. You kind of answered my question with your last answer. But I guess um, to me, reframe it a little bit. Um, with the blackening and browning of America, um, I would presume the same is going to happen within the Christian community. Um, you know, what were some of the tactics that maybe some of the organizations can, can take to prepare for that, um, to assume those mantles of power and those mantles of influence? Um, you know, as the blackening and browning happens, um, the power of white evangelicals is either going to it's going to either be super compact and limited to certain regional areas, uh, or just be diluted altogether. And um, you know, Black America needs to be prepared to, to step into that fold and assume that, that and fill that power gap. Well, you would think that, but when you have people who have a stranglehold on power, that's going to be a little bit more difficult because. Well, you say that, you know, black and brown people will be able to get that. I want to remind you that during the Trump administration, we had over 200 judges appointed, you know, and then you also had three Supreme Court judges appointed. So this is not a game. This is really serious in the ways in which the people will have to think strategically about maybe the demographics are changing, but how do you change the power structure? The power structure cannot change unless we have people at every level of government. We begin to have different kinds of people at every level of government. So what I mean by that is people who are willing to think about the ways in which power has been used in, malfe in malfeasance kind of ways. And to think about how we're going to prepare for that is to think about, are our organizations strong enough? That's first of all. Are we linking up with churches to think about that? How do we think about getting equal pay for everybody? You were just talking about Kroger. It is a shame that Kroger is doing what it's doing right now, and there's no excuse for it. It's just none, because they make millions and millions of dollars. But at the same time, I think economic pressure is really important. There is a question about, you know, whether or not people should be boycotting Georgia. And there was questions that Stacey Abrams didn't want that and other people wanted boycotts of certain things that happened in Georgia. I think people have to use the power that they have at hand to start to make these organizations pay attention to things. But until we decide to make a concerted effort like Republicans and evangelicals have together, to be involved in the political system and not just getting elected, but also making the structures underneath those elections, you know, to, to hold firm. I think that's really important. 
last thing, and this is going to be the thing that hurts everybody's feelings. I think that many of these churches and religious organizations in this country probably need to pay taxes because they've gotten away with this for a very long time. We see all the stories. There was just a story today about a pastor, I believe somewhere in the DC area that got 1.5 million PPP money and just used that to buy a bunch of cars. <coughs> Excuse me. This is ridiculous. And I think that it's not just the ways in which people take money from the government, but it's also the ways they, they fleece people in order to buy jets and all this kind of stuff. And we joke about that. But there's a real serious part of this where evangelical Christianity has turned into a real business, and we need to start considering it that, and we need to start taxing it. All right, then. All right, folks. Uh, here's the book again. Show it, please. Um, the book is called uh, White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America by Dr. An uh, uh, Anthea Butler. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Take care. Thank you, Ron. All right. Thank you very much. All right, folks, uh, real quick, I'm going to uh, uh, give you, first of all, let me thank uh, Eugene, Avis, uh, and Julian for being part of our panel today. I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Uh, and as well as, um, uh, as well as, of course, our legal panel, we thank them as well. Let me give you a shout out to the folks uh, who joined our fan club, John McCall, Cornelia. Ojukwu, Miriam Drees, uh, Charles Bell, Derek Thomas, Rosetta Fulwiley, Veronica Robinson, Edgar Easterlong, Doris Lowe, Gina Watson, Melanie Tittle, uh, C. Harris, uh, Ruby Hightower, Barbara uh, Jones, Lynette Hadley. Hey, got this note here. I slept on you uh, for a minute. Thank you for waking me up to the content that dictates uh, uh, why we see experience daily tribulations. Monday through Friday, from what I see on uh, YouTube, there's not a close second place to your show. Keep doing what you're doing. I'll be a contributor uh, here on out. Uh, and so, um, uh, Bill, I certainly appreciate that. Thank you so very much. I enjoy real news, and you do bring that. I will get a second job in order to support the vision. Big screen, take Fox out, or uh, Cornelia. Cornelia, I appreciate that as well. Uh, let's see here. We got this card right here. Dr. Carr suggested I was able to put together two, three, or four dollars, LOL. Well, a little bit more than that. Roland Martin on the Filter is the best news information program in the country. I appreciate you. Uh, this is Veronica. Thank you very much for the news and service you practice. I always know I can go to you for the honest perspective uh, you provide and turn over. Uh, it took me forever to get the street address. Please add to the ticker tape in the homepage. All right, she's talking about the crawl that's at the bottom. So, uh, Keenan, go ahead and add uh, our address uh, to that. Uh, let's see here. Uh, you're doing a very good job reaching the black people on YouTube, but you need your own network because a lot of blacks uh, won't tune in to YouTube, but they will go to major channels and they don't get the real truth from those channels. Uh, let's see here. Also, Dr. Carr, uh, great to watch uh, Talk Truth. Thank you for that. Uh, this brother says you will have your own network. Just be patient. Uh, and let's see here. Uh, I'm going to read a shorter one. Uh, before I get on out of here, uh, that's not it. And let me see if I can read a shorter one. Let's see here. Dear Mr. Martin, I just had to thank you for this show and all you do. I would like to help you reach your goal. Here's 100 bucks to help you do the thing you do. Keep pushing and help us to understand more. I'm hooked on your show. That's Doris Lowe. So, folks, we certainly appreciate that. If y'all want to support what we do, uh, if you give to YouTube, folks, we only get 55% of that. They keep 45%. So if you want to support us directly, please cash out dollar sign RM Unfiltered, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered, venmo.com is rmunfiltered, Zell is rolling at rollingatsmartin.com or rolling at rollingmartinunfiltered. 
filter.com. You can also support us at New Vision Media, Inc., 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. All right, folks, that is it for us today. I certainly appreciate it. I know April 15th was Jackie Robinson Day, uh, but I wanted to go ahead and rock my, uh, I have two Jackie Robinson jerseys, and so I wanted to go ahead and rock it again uh, in support of uh, Jackie Robinson. Uh, and so, folks, uh, thank you so very much. Uh, we will see y'all uh, tomorrow. Y'all like, like the new background? We switched it out, so we had another one. And so uh, put a little more blue in this one. The other one like really, really blue. So uh, we mix it up. So we don't want to throw some different looks at y'all, so I certainly hope y'all uh, enjoy the show. Again, we got some phenomenal things uh, being planned. I so wish I could share uh, some of the stuff with you, uh, but my goodness, I mean, it's going to be amazing. Uh, and tomorrow, I'm going to show you a preview of a new six-part special we're launching next Monday on Facebook. You don't want to miss it, folks. It's going to be amazing. I can't wait. So tune in tomorrow, and y'all are going to get the first look. I'm going to show it to you first before I put it on social media, okay? So I'm going to show it here first. You want to tune in tomorrow uh, for, I'm going to show you what we have uh, that we're debuting next Monday, a six-part series right here uh, that we're in partnership with Facebook. And so you don't want to miss that. All right, folks, I will see y'all tomorrow. Holla! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.